but I have to live in this country. So it's, uh, it's, it's deeply depressing. Uh, it's embarrassing. Um, it is frustrating that he won. Um, I am absolutely sick to my stomach that, look, that the Democratic Party won't listen to me. Yeah. Hi listeners, how's it going? What's up? Are you ready for America on the Fritz, my podcast about the America of today? This is the final episode of the season, just in time before Christmas. Uh, happy holidays to everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy whatever to everybody out there. This is a, a very nice time in the year, I find, and I love everything about it. Uh, but that's not what you came for. You came for the sixth episode of America on the Fritz and this is a very fitting final episode of this season of this attempt of mine to understand this great political experiment called the United States of America. Why is that? Because in today's episode I speak to the end boss of explaining America and what is wrong with it right now, Mr. Thomas Frank. I visited him in America's capital, Washington DC, a few weeks ago and had this very revealing conversation with him. Listeners, do you want to finally find out about the ins and outs, the intricacies and backstories to how this country has gotten to where it is right now, to a widening social gap, a divided society, the unfulfilled promises we've been talking about in this podcast and much more, to electing a president like Donald Trump? Then this is it. Lean back and listen and learn a bit more about what the bleep is up with America. Listeners, I am sitting on a beautiful leather couch in the house of Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank is an author, a political commentator, a political historian, um, and a Kansan. That is correct. You are from Kansas, Thomas. All of that is true. All true. <laughs> What else do you want my listeners to know about you? Uh, that's good enough. You, at some point, you're going to want to tell them the titles of the books. You know, my books are out in, some of them are out in German. You know this, right? I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think I have three that were translated into German. Let me see if I can remember the titles. The first one was, in English, was called One Market Under God, and in German, it was called uh, uh, Das Falsche, Falsche Versprechen der New Economy. The second one was What's the Matter with Kansas? And in German, it was called Was ist mit Kansas los? <laughs> Very good. That, 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 that is a good translation. Yeah, and, the, and then the third one in English was called Pity the Billionaire. And in German was called, uh, oh, geez. And it had a great cover. Let me see if I have yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had, a, it had a beautiful cover, but I'm forgetting blanking on the title now. Ah, yes. Looking at the, looking I'm at the bookshelf. I'm a milliardaire. I'm a milliardaire. Der Große, what's the subtitle? Der Große Bluff. Der Große Bluff, yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Nice, yeah. nice, nice artwork sure there. I, yeah, I liked, I really liked yeah. the yeah. cover of that one. Yeah. Uh, I want to start out with something that I sort of start out most of my conversations with for my podcast. And that is a, a, a big question. Um, but what I challenge you to do is to t let me know what comes to your head immediately when I ask the following thing. What is wrong with America right now? Look, the, uh, there's many, many, many things wrong with, with America. Uh, the, the problem is coming up with one explanation to, um, 
to to that that, that covers everything. And um, if you ask me, I mean, there that is possible to do. Obviously, you're never going to be able to explain every single last little thing. Uh, but uh, you know, so many of the the the, the superficial things, the sort of the, the the fury and the anger that you come across all the time, the weird uh, politics that that we're going through, um, the uh, the state of the economy, the state of working class people, um, the culture wars, all of this goes back to the same source, and that source, I mean, the sociologists and economists call it inequality, which I think is a terrible, terrible word. A better way of putting it would be the fraying of the middle class society or the, uh, uh, what, what would you say, the, uh, the destruction of the middle class. So this is a country where we were people my age, so I'm 52, uh, people my age and, and older and some younger than us as well, were uh, brought up to believe in, an Amer- or to, to think that we lived in an, in a, in an America where everybody uh, could uh, uh, enjoy a certain standard of living, you know, this is the middle class society. There was this kind of rough equality in America. It would be like the American promise. Right. Dream right. is the wrong word. It was more like that's just who we were and everybody right. knew it. Right. And what the I, American way of life. Yeah. It, yes. It was a cliche when I was a child that you would have in America, you would have a, a blue collar worker and a white collar worker mm-hmm. living next door to each other in the suburbs. And they made about the same amount of money. And all that separated them were tastes and manners. So the blue-collar worker, the guy that worked at the uh, auto assembly line, would drive a Chevy. And the white-collar worker who worked at, say, an advertising agency would drive a Buick or something like that. And one of them would drink Budweiser and one of them would drink martinis, you know. This was a cliché. This is what—everyone knew that's what America was. And that is— that is not possible anymore. I mean, there are like pockets here and there where that still exists, but by and large, that's gone, and everybody knows it's gone. And uh, for working class people, they can either see and feel their life uh, deteriorating in their town falling apart and their way of life falling apart, or they can see that it's going to happen to them very soon, or they can see that it's happening to their children. Yeah, that it's imminent in, in, in whatever way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, uh, the the response of our political, this is, this is inequality. I mean, this is happening, uh, well, it's happening in other places too, but it's much worse here. And uh, this has, uh, you know, this uh, how would you say this makes itself felt in people's lives in all sorts of ways. Uh, for example, one that's in the news a lot lately, the cost of health care in America. I don't know if you've uh, noticed this, Fritz, mm-hmm. how expensive, say, prescription drugs are in the United States. So- They're so expensive that the uh, European coverage that we still have, a sort of um, uh, expat coverage from, from our insurance uh, from home, does not cover uh, the cost of any drugs that uh, you would get, yeah. for example, uh, prescribed by a doctor in the United States. Right now, for most people, there's just nothing they can do about that. They yeah. just have to put up, you know, put up with that, and and they're screwed if they get sick or something like that, or if a family member gets sick, they're ruined and they're going to lose their house. Now, uh, on the uh, on the other end of that, you always have to remember there's an other the other side of that, which is the pharmaceutical companies, which by and large. Uh, are based here in America, and they employ a lot of people here in America. And uh, those people, uh, you know, the the sort of cream of the creative class are doing extremely well. And government policy is made in order to make sure that these people do extremely well. And this is just one story. We, right. You could find similar uh, examples in all sorts of different parts of American life. And if you ask me, that is the source of 
all of the crazy things that are happening in this country right now. Now, as soon as I say that, of course, uh, uh, you know, I, I immediately, to say something like that is to uh, make yourself and your views unacceptable in, um, you know, in the American conversation. And my views are, in fact, unacceptable in the American conversation. You have made yourself unacceptable in the American discourse with yes so in, in, in America the, the the conventional way of looking at these things it's like um, that well um, Americans you know they'll uh, uh, they'll look at all these things that are happening and they'll blame ignorance like ignorance is out of control or racism is out of control and they, they, look these both of those are true and they'll say and you know the right wing is 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 winning and we can't figure out why and they all, but they only won by a small number of votes and so we don't really have to take it seriously uh, and they have all of these mechanisms for brushing off this sort of deeper complaint about inequality uh, and instead they focus on uh, on the symptoms about that um, because you have been writing about the inability of a big topic of yours, the Democratic Party not being able to answer to the needs and worries of their traditional uh, voters, blue collar uh, uh, people all over the country. Uh, you've been writing about that for more than 10 years. Um, your last book, Listen Liberal, um, which I've read, you researched and wrote before the last election. Yeah. Well, I wrote it in 2015, yeah. so it be well before the election, right. and and it's and it's basically it's a book about yeah. <laughs> about so, what so, happened. So and then and then and then and then the, the election happened. I want to go back though. Um, I listened to a podcast that you um, appeared on, Sheer Intelligence, um, and a couple of other podcasts, um, also from before the election. And um, what I noticed was you did not expect this. You did not expect Trump to win. Uh, not until the very end. So I, I, I would, I, but I, but I described exactly uh, how he would win. Yeah. So, so, so that's so that's, that's what a, I find a, fascinating. You knew, you knew it, but you, but you didn't believe well, it. Well, because you, well, that that's incredibly simple to to explain. I knew it, but uh, every poll said that Hillary was going to win. And at the end of the day, you ha you have to believe uh, the polls. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't, I think you know you you've made a, a terrible mistake. Uh, but. I mean, basically, you know, I'm I'm a person that lives in the world of of data and and science, and I believe those things. And so, when every poll, every poll is saying that Hillary Clinton is going to win, um, you know, I'm not I'm not going to say, oh, I have some privileged source of information where I know she isn't. But it was very easy to see what Trump was doing. Yeah. So I wrote or didn't write it, but there's a story that I did. Uh, I, I was interviewed for the New York Times Magazine in. March or April of 2016, and the headline of it is Hillary needs to woo the working class, <laughs> and it's like it's like me saying that, yeah. right? And then um, there are several other examples of that, and then the one that was really uh, 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 you could say painful or you could say fantastic was on uh, uh, I wrote the Guardian story about Trump winning uh, a week before the election. Yeah. Do, you, do you know about this? Yeah. You saw it? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> And that's fascinating, right? And yes. still, you, and still um, uh, you know, looking at data and, 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 and polls but and I stuff. Wrote that you right, that, I wrote that right at the end. So right, the the right, sheer right. intelligence thing you're talking about, when was that? Yeah. Was that that was in like March? Or that something, was in March. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's long before That the is election. true. That is true. Uh, uh, I mean, everybody assumed Hillary Clinton would beat Donald Trump because he was so incompetent yeah. uh, and he was the most 
unpopular presidential candidate in history. And I don't know. I mean, it's and here's Hillary. You know, I mean, and there's new. I, I mean, I keep get, getting reminded of things. Steve Bannon had never managed a, pre, a a political campaign before. Never. And here he is managing one for the presidency. He never even managed a campaign for governor or senator or, or you know, mayor. And he's managing a campaign for the presidency. And he's going up against Hillary's team, who are the best in the business. And, and who had wins. and who had double amount of money, twice as much money. She has Eric Schmidt from Google on her team. She has the micro targeting. She has the big data. She has the the Democrats have software that they wrote themselves for how to going door to door. I mean, they have every and they, and they, every st- and they still lost. They what still was lost. what was your reaction when you realized the election results? When you knew when you knew Trump, what, what was your first thought? Well, I I don't. Uh, This is going to be only in Germany, right? Uh, this is going to be... Oh, it's a podcast. In, this is going to be in the whole world. This is going to be... All right, so I can tell you this. So on the one hand, I... I uh, look, uh, I voted for Hillary. Um, I thought Hillary would have made a very good president. I thought Donald Trump, and I was right about this, Donald Trump will make a terrible president. I live in this country. Uh, I, I dread what Donald Trump is going to do as president. Um... On the other hand, I had this story <laughs> in The Guardian that, uh, that was uh, now going to be published, and I was excited about that. So, uh, but that's all. Uh, I, I mean, that, 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 it, but I have to live in this country. So it's, uh, it's extremely, un, un, you know, uh, it's deeply depressing. Uh, it's embarrassing. Um, It is frustrating that he won. Um, I am absolutely sick to my stomach that look that the Democratic Party won't listen to me. Yeah. So here, so the, here's wait, another no, observation. Nobody in this country will. I mean, you know who? You know, the only people. Who, well, I mean, like Trump supporters do, yeah. but no, the, the 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 people who could have done something, they're they're they have no interest in what I was saying yeah. then, and they have no interest in what I'm saying today. Yeah. So it's like massively, massively frustrating. But there's a certain consolation in being right about things, you know. And, uh, uh, course, but, yeah. but that's, I, I mean, which is, which is, you know, so, so I'm going to sell a lot of books, right? I sell a lot of books, but who, who's buying them? Who's reading them? I mean, uh, not any, you know, the Democratic Party is, doesn't care. So here's another observation I made um, uh, in preparation for this, uh, for this conversation with you. You've written a couple of books. Now, Hillary Clinton has just written a book as well. I read it. Um, I you, reviewed it. Yeah. You, you read it. You reviewed it. And the title is What Happened, right? <laughs> um, you guys have something in common, you, the two of you. Uh, a couple of your titles are what, What's the Matter With? Um, the, the other one is, you know, Whatever Happened With? Uh, and and uh, so it's, this, it's the same kind of approach of trying to figure out an, an issue and, and digging really deep into it. Now, here's my observation. The big difference is... And I haven't uh, read Hillary's book. I've only listened to a, a, a one-hour interview that she gave about it. Is is that she really looks, or with her team, immediate, sort of like immediately after, got her team together, went into hard work mode day and night, and tried to gather evidence and arguments and try to rationalize the uh, out of it to try to figure out what happened and still does not address the 
the, the issues or does not come in the same area of, of, of addressing the issues that you do. No, that's right. That's correct. So it's the same approach, but it's, but it's no, completely it's different. Of course it's not. No, because Hillary is, uh, and Hillary is an intelligent person, but uh, I mean, this is what my, my review of her book was about, that she can't, she's blocked from, mm -hmm. uh, from, from looking at the questions in a, in a straightforward way, in a way that would yield results, because she's, um, you know, everything starts with, uh, from the, I mean, Hillary Clinton is probably the the least objective person you could ask to to do an analysis of that of that of that disaster, and uh, you know everything has to uh, when, uh, you know wind up rationalizing uh, all the choices that she made in the campaign and explaining why those were the right thing to do and why this was impossible to see coming and it's somebody else's fault the Russians the FBI the media and that she you know bears no blame for it and the other big stumbling block is uh, her husband's administration she can't acknowledge uh, any fault in, in what he did as president and so something like NAFTA or something like bank deregulation these are things that really hurt people uh, and really hurt the country, and that especially NAFTA and then all the trade deals that followed, the globalization that followed, th these are things that really uh, injured working class voters and really injured the standing of the of the Democratic Party with organized labor. I mean, if you ever talk to a, a union group in America, they'll bring up NAFTA immediately. It'll come up right away. Uh, there, it's still the great betrayal, and it's why they, uh, you know, they don't they don't trust the Democratic Party anymore. They're furious at at the Clintons, this kind of thing. Uh, she never doesn't even talk about that in the book. Those things don't come up. Uh, they can't be permitted to come up because she thinks she was right. So therefore, that can't be the problem, you know, because that would mean that 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 voters had a legitimate beef with her, and that cannot be the answer. So therefore, she can't look in that direction. Uh, so, you know, she's, like I said, she's exactly the wrong person to look, <laughs> to listen to. She does have some, you know, privileged insight in the sense that she was there and, you know, she saw everything go down with her own eyes, which none of, none of the rest of us did. It's remarkable, to, to me, is remarkable that someone like that can do that, can actually, maybe it's the only thing that she could do. That's what that some memoir. people say. Uh, immediately write There's it out. Lots of memoirs but, like that. I've got. Uh, but immediately, a couple of weeks after such a such a, I can only imagine traumatic experience to go at, to go to work like that again. I don't know. Wow. If it's a, I don't know if it's a couple of weeks after. I think it's it's considerably. I'm sorry. I'm looking around for another. I have a memoir, another memoir around the house somewhere. Uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan's book about about 1896. He lost the election of 1896, and the book is called The First Crusade. Uh, oh, there it is. There, the first battle. It's the first battle in the in the war. He ran for president three times. He lost the first time. Wow. And uh, uh, we're looking at a very nicely bound book here. <laughs> yeah, from 1896. Uh, the first William battle. Jennings Bryan. He was a Democrat. You want to you want to know why he's different from Hillary? <laughs> yeah. So I'll read you a quote. This is a, so it's a collection of speeches. So Bryan was a famous orator. He he could really talk. Um, well, has it been said by the senator from Missouri that we have come to a parting of the ways. Today, the Democratic Party stands between two great forces, each inviting its support. Now, remember, this is 1896. Okay, this is going to this is going to ring a bell for you. Okay, two great forces, each inviting its support. On the one side stand the corporate interests of the nation, its moneyed institutions, its aggregations of wealth and capital, wow. imperious, wow. arrogant, 
compassionless. They demand special legislation, favors, privileges, immunities. They can subscribe magnificently to campaign funds. They can strike down opposition with their all-pervading influence and to those who fawn and flatter, bring ease and plenty. They demand that the Democratic Party shall become their agent to execute their merciless decrees. On the other side, stand the unnumbered throng which gave a name to the Democratic Party and for which it has assumed to speak. Work worn and dust begrimed, they make their sad appeal. They hear of average wealth increased on every side and feel the inequality of its distribution. They see an overproduction of everything desired because of the underproduction of the ability to buy. They cannot pay for loyalty except with their suffrage and can only punish betrayal with their condemnation. On and on and on. Yeah. So, <laughs> 1896. Yeah, and we're back there. We're back there again. Yeah. If only Hillary could write something like that. Yeah. I mean, for all the bluster and the rotomontade and the, you know, the, the, the empty rhetoric, that's... It just cuts to the heart of it so much more you know, yeah. quickly than, than uh, Hillary did. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, take you to an, a, another observation I made only yesterday. I, I visited the Library of Congress here yeah. in, in, in D.C. The Jefferson Building? Yeah, the Jefferson Library in there. Um, I had never been there. And um, I entered, and I immediately had this feeling that I had entered a temple. Yeah. And... And then I kept looking around, and it's all about knowledge and science and uh, and and human, you know, humanism. Oh, I, I love that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's and, a beautiful building, the rotunda of it. Did you yeah, go in there? Yeah, 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 yeah. the reading room, the, the big reading room that you can visit from, that you can look uh, look down uh, upon. And then it's then an idea came came to me, and uh, and I'm I'm curious to hear what 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 you what you have to say about that. I realized that actually America and Americanism might just be a religion and that one of the th one of the one of the things that are th that is going on and that has maybe always haunted uh, the united states of america is that because it's a religion with such high maybe unattainable ideals that that is just not earthly enough to be put into practice <laughs> yeah very good so that's that is a uh this is a well-worn theme in American cultural history that uh, Americanism is a, a kind of civic religion. Right, right, we, right. We, you know, because America has, we don't have an established church, and there's so many different, you know, there's, you just drove all the way across the country, and there's so many different flavors of religious practice in this country. So I'm from Kansas City, and it is, you know, Protestantism, the Protestant revolution is still rolling in America, and people are continually coming up with new religions, you know, all the time. And so in in the place of there, there is no, um, there there can be no... Um, no state religion. No, yeah, exactly. There can't be a state religion. Uh, and in the absence of that, you have a kind of uh, a religion of the flag, of the symbols of the state, uh, you know, of Americanness. Uh, yes, and that is, that is a... Um, that is very true. And so my and so my 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 observation then is how oh, can also, how can there that are ever... religions that confuse the two right. uh, that that think the Constitution was divinely inspired. You know, and these guys where God was telling them what to write. Mm -hmm. You know, in the same way, you know, like Moses when he wrote the mm -hmm. Old Testament. You know, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so what, keep. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. Well, um, uh, maybe maybe to get your reaction on on my conclusion from that 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 it's just so incredibly hard to put that you know to put a religion 
any religion into practice, especially when when it's a religion created by created by human beings. Yes, and that and, that these that these high ideals of of equality and 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 you know equal access to to education and uh, and and all those those. Beautiful. You're talking to someone who really believes in it. So, you know, I am a, you know, profound, deep believer in the sort of Jeffersonian ideals of government. By the way, even Jefferson himself was this amazing hypocrite, <laughs> you know, about just extraordinary, mind blowing hypocrite. In what sense? He believed that all men are created equal and owned 250 men. You know, it's insane, yeah. anyhow. And uh, I mean, and he knew that was wrong, and he knew the contradiction in it, yeah. and he just, and he just, you know, persisted and went along his way. So men just had a different definition in in his in his theory. Uh, it's, than not, it's not clear. I mean, Jefferson obviously knew that slaves were humans, uh, and he knew that this was. Uh, if you, you you know go back and read, he knew that he had, he had a lot of qualms about this institution, but that's what propped up his way of life. Mm. You know, he lived up on that mountain where he would sit there and read his Voltaire and, you know, and his Diderot and was supported Incredible by, library, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and was supported by this army of enslaved people. That's what made all that possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the, the one was connected with the other in a kind of, I mean, a perfect example. So I, I, I went to the University of Virginia, so I spent a lot of time in Jefferson land. And... Um, uh, uh, I last a couple years ago, I went to Monticello and I took what's called the slave tour. So we toured, uh, in, in addition to touring the house and all that, we toured uh, the places where the slaves lived. We looked at what the slaves worked on. We learned about their lives, and it was fascinating. And one of the things that we learned was that you know Jefferson, had, a lot of these slaves were uh, very accomplished uh, craftsmen. Right, and they they were very good at what they did. One of them was a master carpenter, and in fact, uh, Jefferson really liked the guy. Uh, and this slave carved the desk on which Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and it's just wow. I mean, that is that, 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 that is maybe the, the most the paradox of America right there. That is know? maybe the most tangible uh, symbol that I've ever heard uh, regarding the, in my opinion, historical fact that this country uh, was built. Um, by slaves. Yeah. Well, par- a big part of it was, yeah, yeah the South. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the, you know, the North was, uh, a com- was a completely different economic system. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that certainly was, I mean, that's the, what, what were we talking about? The civic religion of America. And yeah, it, 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 you can point to that stuff and you can point to Jefferson's enormous hypocrisy. Um, and you can also point to you know, so I, I come from a very populist background. I really believe this stuff. And you can point to all of the hypocrisy among people like a guy like Andrew Jackson, who really was the founder of the uh, the populist tradition in this country, was also, uh, you know, uh, uh, single-handedly responsible for uh, the Trail of Tears. Mm-hmm. You know what that is? Yeah. So, you know, the, it, it's incredible expulsion mistreatment. Of, yeah, of, expulsion of Native Americans yes. uh, well, yeah. Yeah. from uh, Georgia and places like that. Uh, and uh, so it's it is very difficult to look at those people as uh, saints anymore, but the ideas themselves remain extremely powerful. And so the yeah the uh, the, the the founding saints <laughs> aren't all that wonderful. Uh, Maybe because they are and were human beings. Yeah. Or you look at a guy like John Brown. I'm sorry, we're getting off the the track here, but Kansas, the state that mm-hmm. I grew up in, mm-hmm. uh, regards. Uh, you know, its founder regards. Do you know who John Brown was? Uh, John Brown was a uh, abolitionist 
who was went a little farther than most. So the, Kansas was founded by people who moved, abolitionists who moved out there to deliberately stop slave owners from moving west, to block slavery from moving west. And they went with guns. And they moved out there and they started, uh, they didn't start it, but they very quickly got embroiled in a civil war with the state of Missouri. So they had a war going with the state next to them. Which bef- was before, before the actual civil war. Yeah, it was about 10 years before the civil war started. And one of the leaders in this, he was, it was called Bleeding Kansas. One of the leaders was a guy called John Brown. And he later became this great hero. You've heard the song, John Brown's Body, and you've read the poems, or maybe you haven't. Anyhow, he later decided he was going to take his war with what they called the slave power. He was going to take his war with the slave power to the next level. And he went out and collected all of these weapons, and he got a band of followers, and they tried to take over the federal arsenal at uh, a place called Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And they were going to hand out the weapons to slaves, and they were going to move down through the uh, uh, Appalachian Mountains, uh, uh, becoming a guerrilla army and freeing the slaves in the 1850s. And he got caught. Uh, the slaves uh, in Harper's Ferry did not rally to his side, and instead the army showed up, and they had a massive shootout, and he was captured in the hanged him. But this was, John Brown was regarded as the, in Kansas, he is regarded as the founder of the state. Wow. He didn't you know, have any role in founding it. He wasn't a politician or anything like that, but he's regarded as a patron saint, I should say, of the state. Mm-hmm. Well, what he did was terrorism. Yeah, absolutely. Today, that's the legal definition. It's like, how can you, how can you say that's the founder of your state? And you know, anyhow, uh, it's the 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 religion of of democracy is a very difficult one, but at the same time, the man's right. You know, slavery is absolutely intolerable, and we should be uh, fighting it by, you know, I mean, he, he was doing the right thing, except for that he was killing civilians and that sort of stuff. It almost goes back to John Locke, right, who said that if, 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 uh, if there is a tyrant in, uh, in, in power, then taking up arms and uh, using violence to get rid of that tyrant is um, actually uh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, Jefferson said that too. Jefferson... And John Locke are very, you know, close. If you ever go to Monticello, have you been there? No. There's a portrait of John Locke mm-hmm. on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, yeah, yeah, Jefferson liked to re- to say a similar version of that, which is, what is it? The uh, the tree of liberty must be periodically be watered by the blood of tyrants. Oh, and wow. look, what, you ever look at the, you know, what the state motto of Virginia is? Virginia, the state right over the Potomac. You yeah. can throw a rock from here and you hit hit Virginia. The state motto of Virginia is Six Semper Tyrannis." thus always to tyrants. And it shows uh, uh, the goddess of liberty uh, standing on the dead body of a king. Wow. And you know who yelled that slogan in a, in a crucial moment? John Wilkes Booth, right after he shot Lincoln. He jumped wow. down onto the stage of the, of the Ford's Theater here in Washington and yelled, Six Semper Tyrannus, after he shot Lincoln. Yeah, that, and that. <laughs> and how's that for? How's that for your? You know, ideals all gone wrong. You know, everything yeah. wrong, everything upside down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to go into two topics that that I I want to understand better, and that I think my listeners would 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 enjoy getting your uh, take on, and they're both sort of um, American ways of um, categorizing sort of black and white, uh, day and night. Uh, either the one or the other, and that is um, the two-party system. Please 
Thomas, help me understand why in God's name there's only two parties. I know. It's the dumbest thing in the world. And why that it has not changed. Okay. Just, I just quickly, because I don't. I mean, Fritz. I don't want to get into the weeds here. This is a. It's a. It's a legal issue, mm-hmm. but it's. Um, so the two-party system is a stupid system, and anybody that studied, uh, do you know what game theory is? Do you have that in Germany? Yeah. Or, or basic economics can tell you why. If you only allow two parties, all of these things are going to happen. Among other things, they're going to. Um, Certain issues they will fight about, but other issues they'll come to consensus on, and maybe the public wants them to, and maybe they don't, but they'll do it anyway. Uh, they'll answer to donors. They'll do all these things. Once you rule out the possibility of outside competition, whoever controls the two parties uh, essentially controls the agenda and controls all sorts of other things, and it, it very easily slips into a monopoly, yeah. into oligarchy. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible idea for a political system. Well, in the 19th century, uh, the two-party system used to periodically be the two parties would periodically be challenged by third parties. They would uh, bubble up all the time. The Republican Party, as that we know of today, started as a third party to challenge what was then called the Whig Party. Uh, and the reason they did that was because the two main parties, the Democrats and the Whigs, were not addressing the issue of the day, which was slavery. They would not deal with it. They wouldn't talk about it. They would, you know, or they would come up with these stupid compromises, but they wouldn't face it squarely. And the Republicans rose up to challenge uh, the slavery issue. Later on in the 19th century, the issue was when I was reading from William Jennings Bryan, the issue was industrialism and inequality and all of those, you know, the sort of terrifying issues of the late 19th century. And you had the two parties refused to debate them. This is before Bryan. And, um, they, uh, you know, the, the Democrats were very similar to the Republicans. They would, you know, Grover Cleveland would be in, Benjamin Harrison. It didn't make any difference. They were exactly the same on these the central issue of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, you had a third party rise up called the Populists uh, from Kansas and the Midwest. And they, uh, 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 and they, they said, no, we've got to debate this issue. You've got to have labor unions. You've got to do things for farmers. You've got to take on monopolies. You know, all of those issues that we know of today is the, the economic issues. And what happened in that case is they were absorbed by the Democratic Party in the person of, of William Jennings Bryan. And so the Democratic Party sort of uh, took over those issues and the system started to function again. Well, after that happened, um, the two parties got together and decided that they they didn't want to be challenged in this way anymore. They didn't want third party challenges anymore. And they essentially made third parties illegal at the state level all over America. So you can have a third party, you can run for president like uh, Ross Perot or Ralph Nader or something like that, but it's v- extremely difficult to build a third party at the state level anymore because of the the way the law, the legal system is is structured in this country. So the two-party system is locked in by law, and we are finding out right now why that is a disaster. And I, and my observation would be on top of that, uh, that it, it it has an effect on, on people's um, way of thinking. Um, Sorry. The clock is ticking. Yeah, chiming. Yeah. It chimes every fifteen minutes. I should have turned it off. Oh no, it's nice. Sorry about that. No, it's nice. <laughs> um, that I want to. I want to um, observe that it might also just have a uh, a real effect on the way that that people uh, fundamentally think and 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 are by by having that political system in place, sort of forced to think in a black and white um, yes. way. And well, there's, there's, always, there's only two answers yeah. to everything, yeah. one party then the other, and there's yeah. a, there, everything is, is the opposite. And yeah. it also leads to the weirdest consequence of it, and this one maybe you don't 
have in Germany, I don't know, maybe you do, is in this city, it is regarded as the height of wisdom to be somewhere in between the two parties. So they call this centrism, and there's a cult of centrism, and this is particularly in Washington, well, D.C. Start a party. <laughs> yeah, a centrist, the centrist party. party. I mean, but there's people try that all the time. It's the dumbest thing in the world. What you have in this country is, um, I mean, in like newspapers uh, and uh, all sorts of people regard themselves as being very wise if they are somewhere in between the two parties. And so they also say, well... Uh, and this, by the way, this has happened to me uh, personally, and so I, I know about how, how wh why this is such a you know a strategic or tactical blunder, depending on how you look at it. And that is that uh, certain opinions are not permitted if they are outside of the range of the two parties. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if your views are to the right of the Republicans or to the left of the Democrats, then your views are, are um, illegitimate. And, you know, it would be hard to be right to the, to the right of the Republicans. Basically, what this system has... So uh, go back to game theory. What are the two sort of possible positions in the two-party system? So in this two-party system, the two parties are locked in by law. They can't be challenged. What do they do? So the uh, the Republican Party has decided, well, it's going to f like move the conversation as far to the, the Republican Party is uh, is a minority party in this country, even though right now they're in a, you know, they're they have the power. It's a minority. Completely right now, yeah. Yeah, but it's nevertheless it represents a minority of uh, a, a tiny minority, of, you know, small business, wealthy people, that sort of thing. Uh, and their idea is to move the conversation as far to the right as they can. And so they have, you know, uh, been moving rightward ever since the 1960s. I mean at an incredible speed. The Democratic Party has said, well, our response is to try to occupy the center. Mm -hmm. And so as the Republican Party moves to the right, the Democrats have also moved to the right, constantly trying to split the difference. Bill Clinton used to call, and they, this is, they, they, you know, they call themselves, the Clintons call themselves centrists. They're the centrist faction in the Democratic Party. Uh, Bill Clinton had this term that he called triangulation, where he would try to get to up get this, a medium point between uh, his own supporters and the Republicans. It's like, well, why aren't you on the side of your supporters? No, no, no. He wants to be somewhere between his own party and the, and the Republicans. Well, Barack some, Obama they, they, had a term they, for it. He they, called it the grand bargain. Uh -huh. This is what he wanted to do, was always strike a grand bargain. with the, the Republicans are like... Consensus. Yeah, consensus. As long as one party is dedicated to its agenda and the other party is dedicated to consensus, who's going to win? What's going to happen? You can see how it plays out. Well, all you have to do is put those things, those two things into your game theory computer. The right-wing party is going to win. They're going to continually drag the conversation to the right. Maybe the problem is, though, that, I mean, there's something to say. There's something noble in that as well when a president is, you know, really trying to be a president for... For, for everybody. Sure. I, uh, get that. I understand that. He's the president for everybody, no matter what he does, mm. he, because that's the way our laws are written in this country. I mean, if, if you wanted to be a complete jerk and only, uh, you know, only rule on behalf of your base, I, I mean, I mean, you, I suppose you could do that. But uh, Barack Obama, I mean, we can we can talk about the, you know, what led Barack Obama astray, because, this, you know, this is a presidency. His is a presidency that began with such enormous promise and wound up, you know, him being stymied at every turn, uh, you know, and the Republicans stopping him everywhere and him being unable to break through, uh, unable to get, you know, so many things done. Uh, it just, it, it was a, a, a very depressing time. I mean, this is worse, of course, Trump is worse, but uh, what happened to Obama, and I think Obama was a casualty of this kind of centrism of what you just described, that he wanted to be seen as the president of all Americans. He wanted to be seen as a a figure that united, what did he used to say, a uniter, not a divider. Uh, and 
he wound up getting played. He wound up getting beaten. It was game theory. It was it, it, the the first moment I heard him utter the phrase "grand bargain." I knew he was lost. I knew it was a lost cause. Uh, I mean, but the thing is, I, I I don't know how many times I've written about this. Twenty. It doesn't make any difference. You cannot persuade the Democrats that they're playing the game wrong. You cannot. They will not listen. And that's that's a really interesting story in its own right. Why won't they? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're absolutely why, why won't they? Because they don't believe in it. This is so that's what listen liberal is. You know, I'm uh, 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 look, I as you said earlier in the conversation, I've written, you know, I wrote about the Democrats losing the working class 12 years ago. And I'd written, frankly, be- about it long before that in Baffler magazine and places like that. Uh, and, you know, the book that I did that in, it was a huge bestseller. Everybody knows that critique. It's very well known now. Why don't they listen? Why don't they listen? And ultimately, the answer has to come back. And, you know, I know Barack Obama knew that uh, knew that story and he knew the argument. Why didn't he pay attention to that? Ultimately, it's because he didn't want to. I mean, you have to say they did what they did because that's what they wanted to do. Can we can we maybe zoom into one of the um, you've talked about this before and um, and I, I am going to try to get an answer from you now that finally satisfies me because I have been I have asked this question to many Americans and I still have not gotten an answer that and I think I think you'll give it to me. I'm a lawyer by training and um, the one thing that I've never understood about uh, Barack Obama in office is why didn't he prosecute Wall Street? Huh. Well, that's that's funny that you'd ask it. That's that was the sort of guiding question of listen, liberal. That's the question that's at the heart of it, because that's the failure. That had he played that differently, uh, I think Hillary would have been elected. I think Barack Obama would have been a hero. He would have been a beloved figure. The Republicans might never have taken Congress. You know, it's just a it's just a a, a blunder. Now. Uh, You can't even bring that up with Democrats. They don't even talk about it. They don't admit it's an issue. They don't acknowledge it. It's all forgotten now. So um, they so they say it, it, there was there was bigger fish to fish to fry. No, We they, have they, to save they the economy. They basically, they don't they they don't have an answer for it. Uh, or they say, well, uh, you know, the they do say they say among themselves they say things like, um, uh, you know, these are good guys. They made one mistake. You know, they made one. What am I? What are we going to do? You know, come on. These are good guys. At the end of the day, they. They treated them. This is my theory about it. Um, you know, look. Ultimately, Barack Obama has to answer that question, and um, uh, or Eric Holder, who was his attorney general. Um, but Barack Obama could have ordered that with, you know, he would just call Eric Holder into his office and say, "I want you to get on this, and I want you to go after these guys and throw everything you got at them." But in, that that remains the big, the great question of the of the Obama years: why he why he didn't do that? Why there's no accountability in, in, for these people? Look, they'll say things like. Um, They were good guys. They'll say things like it's too complicated. Um, we know all of those things are, are those are those are bullshit excuses. Uh, they they prosecuted lots of good people who at, at the other end, people who lied on their mortgage applications. Uh, those people are all you know in jail. The FBI went after them. And on, on and on a similar end, uh, they prosecuted people that other presidents were uh, you know arguably in bed with. Uh, if we look at the Enron Enron scandal. Yep. Well, the Enron scandal which is very very similar. Uh, and George W. Bush was closely identified yeah. with Enron yeah. back in his presidency and he prosecuted those guys. Uh, but no, Barack Obama didn't do it. Why? I think ultimately uh, my uh, explanation for it is 
real basic class solidarity, that these are guys who are very, very similar. So the Democratic Party, take a step back here. We've been beating around the bush here, and it's time to state the thesis directly, which is that the Democratic Party, my interpretation of it is that this is a class party. Um, and it, in a 19th century sense, it is a class party. The class that it cares about, though, is the professional class, not the working class, the uh, white-collar, affluent professionals. Now, sometimes the Democrats themselves will admit this. They'll talk about that. Um, that's who they are. That's clearly who their leadership is. That's clearly who runs the party, uh, who makes the decisions. That's their most important demographic group. I mean, Hillary Clinton was counting on these suburban white-collar voters to win the election for her. Um, I don't know why they think there's enough of those people, but <laughs> that's, what, that's what she thought. Um, anyhow, that's who the Democratic Party is. That's who their leadership is. So a guy like Eric Holder or a guy like Barack Obama or you go any of the top officials in the Justice Department or the Treasury Department, they went to school with those guys on Wall Street. They are personal friends with those guys on Wall Street. Even if they're not personal friends, they they look at them and they see people very much like themselves and they feel, uh, and not only like themselves, it's not just this, this crude, you know, like uh, uh, class interest. They, they also have developed a theory and they embrace a theory where these people hold uh, uh, the key to prosperity itself. I mean, they, there's all of these books that they've written about this, the, you know, the, the rise of the creative class and all this kind of nonsense, uh, uh, you know, about how this class, that, you know, it is, it is white collar, creative workers, uh, you know, th these people who have advanced degrees, that's prosperity. That's the future also of the, of the American economy. And of the world economy. And that's the, that is the, and, 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 the, and so it's very easy for them to, to say that. And, and then uh, they say at the same time, we're not going to prosecute these guys because these are good guys. This is the future. You know, the, the, that's, that's who we are. But blue collar people, there's, look, oh, there's nothing can be done for you. Nothing can be, you know, your town is destroyed. Your, the, the, you know, your employer moved to Mexico. Uh, you know, the, they put everybody out of work. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but that's just like, that's modernity. And so, they, you know, nothing can be done about that. Uh, and both of these things are related. These are the two sides of the same coin. And yeah, that's my interpretation of the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I read, I read the book. There's a reason that, that, look, there's a reason that a buffoon like Donald Trump you know, wins over working class voters because in some clumsy, stupid way, he gets this and he enunciates this and he has put these things together. Uh, and uh, uh, he hasn't in an intellectual way, like he hasn't read Listen Liberal, he wouldn't understand what I'm talking, I mean, he hasn't read The Rise of the Creative, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. But he does understand in some blunt and crude way um, that you know globalization, Wall Street, and the demise of uh, 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 you know of, of manufacturing in America that these things all go together somehow, and the public also knows this. Everybody knows it, but Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> so is that some sort of is that some sort of PR intuition that that Trump had, or I mean, if he didn't know these things because he read about them or his his. He doesn't read them. So I've wondered about that too. I mean, we talked about the the great mystery of Barack Obama's uh, presidency. Well, the great mystery of Trump 
is because he, he is how did he figure this out? Because he doesn't mm-hmm. seem like an intelligent man. No. He doesn't seem like a, a, the kind of man who would read a lot of books and say, aha, this is what I need to do if I'm going to run for president. But he did exactly the right thing. I mean, he nailed it, you know. First he defeated like 17 Republicans and then he defeated Hillary Clinton. Extraordinary, you know. And this is a man that came out of nowhere, had ne- you know never run for office before as a campaign manager who doesn't know how you run a campaign. You know, he doesn't raise very much money. It's, it, it, is, it is amazing. It, is, it blows the mind. How did he do it? Is he a genius or is he a fool? And I don't know the answer. I've never met the man, um, but I would be willing to guess that he's not as stupid as he seems, mm-hmm. um, that there is some kind of intelligence underneath that, that, that crazy hairdo. <laughs> You know, there's got to be, or else his advisors are just really, 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 really good. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, there's another, the other explanation is that it's just random. It's chance. It's just sooner or later, you're going to get somebody that puts all these things together. You know, you've got some of them, you know, Ted Cruz is saying, you got some of them, Pat Buchanan is saying, some of them, you know, that, uh, I don't know, uh, some of these culture war guys are saying, but here's Trump saying all of these things. Uh, maybe that's just random and just sooner or later that was going to happen. Um, but, uh, I don't know the answer to that. So let's, let's just look at, um, I would say, I would say, we'll add one thing that Steve Bannon does impress me. This is a man that, uh, I don't agree with him, but he has clearly read a lot of, uh, literature, both of the left and the, and of the right. And this is a man that, that probably does get it. Um, but he only got on Trump's campaign late, you know, after the convention. So yeah. the die was already cast by the time he came along. And he's gone now. Yeah. Um, so just I, th- I think, you know, to wrap up and maybe look at um, at, at today again, um, there's I think you've also said this uh, before that there is maybe a hope that when we look at what he has gotten done, that maybe it is actually not so bad to have him in place than another Trump who might be oh yeah who might be even worse. Oh yes, um, absolutely. Now, now I want to challenge you on that because he might not have have gotten a lot done in terms of legislation because maybe he just doesn't know how to work uh, politics, but he has already gotten done a lot of damage internationally. Oh yeah, even even with just words and. He has already uh, done a lot in terms of deregulation. Oh yeah, that's, um, that's right. So that's I wrote a book about that back in the uh, the George Bush days. I'm not going to uh, get it out right now. It was called the Wrecking Crew, and it's how uh, what conservatives do when they're in office and the kind of people they appoint to positions of power is extraordinary because he's doing exactly what I uh, described in that book. Is you know appointing people that hate the agency that they're appointed to run. And he's, a, you know, getting rid of competent people in the federal bureaucracy. Uh, this is a, wash, a very Washington story, by the way. You could walk around this neighborhood and ask people about it and you'd, you'd hear the most incredible tales. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, he's doing all those things. However, he is not, uh, if it had been, let's say Mike Pence was president or Ted Cruz was president, these are people that understand how legislation gets done. Uh, and they have a Republican Congress to work with. They could turn back the clock in a hundred different ways. And um, thankfully, Trump is totally incompetent at that job. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, mo- the, mo- the biggest thing he's got done, he did with the Democrats. So, you know, Chuck and Nancy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, we can, we can be thankful for that, that the man is just 
flatly incompetent at governing. Uh, I think that's all we really have to be thankful for with him. So do you think that just as a... Because I would say that there is a... We should be thankful that he's a total wake-up call to the Democrats. The thing is that they just hit snooze and went right back to sleep. You know, they are determined to not hear the alarm bell. So... That is is mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Well, how, how welcome, can to you... yeah. <laughs> welcome to America. Welcome to America, Fritz. Wow. Um, I do want to, uh, I, I do like to wrap up my conversations on a positive, maybe hopeful note um, and looking into the future a little bit. Uh, give me something, give me something hopeful, Thomas, about America about the future of America. Oh, well, this is a, it's a, it's a beautiful country. It's a country filled with great and wonderful people. Uh, it's a country with, uh, you know, fantastic uh, uh, cultural tradition, um, you know, and, and just, Jesus, I was just in New York, that just the, the thriving vitality of that place never ceases to amaze me, you know, or, and I'm, you know, like I say, I'm from Kansas City, I go back there all the time. These are wonderful people that live in America, and I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm always thankful, I'm always happy and hopeful about that. So the basis stands and it stands firm and it's it's the yeah. American people. We're, look, we're, we're, we're good people who believe profoundly in our soul about, uh, you know, the, the democratic ideal. Um, and that's, you know. Presidents, that's, presidents that's, come and go, but the, but the people exactly. stay. And, and, and our mistrust for aristocracy. I, I, I we're different from Europeans in a lot of different ways. Uh, we have and and the populist tradition is this huge part of it. And I'm forever having to explain this to Europeans because they think of populism as a bad word. This is a terrible thing. They think it means racism. What it means is we hate hierarchy. Mm-hmm. We hate aristocracy. We hate presumption of all kinds. And that's deep in the American grain. That's a very very healthy and wholesome thing. And, uh, you know, it, we're, there's an ugly side to that, which is Donald Trump. But there's also a very wonderful side to that, which is the democratic tradition. And, uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that that, uh, that that will survive and that that will uh, rescue us. <laughs> the civic religion of Americanness. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Now you're getting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Thomas. It's been a pleasure. Oh, the, uh, the pleasure is mine, sir. <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk again. Yeah. Listeners, Fritz here again. That was my conversation with Thomas Frank. And all I still want to say is he taught me so much about America and he was a very fun conversation partner. So thanks again, Thomas, from my little studio here in Brooklyn. It was great meeting you. It was great talking to you. And um, a lot of people are buying your books already, except those leading the Democratic Party. Um, But I do suggest you guys, listeners, to buy Thomas's most recent book for sure. It's called Listen Liberal and... It is fascinating. It will teach you a lot about America and what is up with this country right now. A very special thanks, as always, goes to the most talented and wonderful Lawrence Habley for the artwork. Check americaonthefritz.com, as always, and send me your questions and comments if you like. That's info at americaonthefritz.com. This episode was sponsored by Austin East Cider. I just had myself a cider of theirs after an exhausting bike ride and there was a cold Austin East Cider waiting for me in the fridge and it was very refreshing. So if you're of legal drinking age, I suggest you get yourself one. Uh, Get yourself a couple for the holidays. It really is a cider for every occasion. If you like this episode, you know the drill. Make sure to rate and review it on iTunes. This was the last episode of the season, so I'll let you go with my best wishes 
for the last couple of days of 2017 and a kick butt start into 2018. America on the Fritz is going to take a break to make some space for new endeavors come 2018. It's been a pleasure serving your ears with everything related to learning more about the America of today. Keep an ear out for more in the future. Peace out, everyone. Take care.